1: Welcome to Noob's Network and African Studies. I'm your host, Susan Thompson of Colgate University. My guest today is Riedel Kesselring of the Institute for Social Anthropology at the University of Basel in Switzerland. She's written a fascinating book titled Bodies of Truth, Law, Memory and Emancipation in Post-Apartheid South Africa. It's published in 2017 by Stanford University. I found it to be an important book in my teaching and in my own writing to understand the embodied and everyday effects of state-sponsored violence, as well as the limits of the law to produce social repair. Of particular interest is Kesselring's theorizing of the relationship between the body and the law as a mechanism to critique South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Read, I found your book to be an innovative study of the trc its focus on embodiment and the ways in which formal justice institutions do not consider the everyday and present violence of injustice uh, was particularly fascinating to me and to my students, if I'm honest. And for, for uh, you know, in my perspective, and one reason why I wanted to speak to you today is that your study illuminates the tension of people craving justice from institutions that simply aren't really designed to deliver it leading the women you in, interviewed in Cape Town, South Africa, to file a legal suit in the United States. So my first question is, what brought you to South Africa to study the TRC? And, of course, um, why Cape Town?
2: Thank you so much, Susan, for, for having me and for choosing my book uh, to have a discussion about it. I'm very excited about it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, yeah, what brought me to Cape Town? It's, it's a while back, um, maybe 13 years. I, I was studying social anthropology at the University of Zurich at the time, and I went to study one term abroad at the University of Cape Town, uh, which I did, but then I also wanted to stay on to do the field research for my master's thesis. And in the courses I took, um, I read a lot about the TRC, uh, the Truth Commission, mm-hmm. um, but also the criticism um, South Africans had. But there wasn't any piece which was um, very satisfying in terms of, um, you know, showing me what happened since the Truth Commission. There was one book which I really like and still uh, like a lot, which is Bearing Witness by Fiona Roth. Mm-hmm. And I went. She was in the, in the same department, so I went to see her and ask her what what should I do research on? Is there any gap uh, which you can identify, which I could be, you know, could I be useful in doing some research um, in terms of the follow up of the truth commission, as she did her study on the women um, and the TRC, but also the families of these women. Um, so she said, yeah, um, there is a gap. Please look at what has happened since the Truth Commission. Are victims satisfied? Um, what has happened since? And she connected me to um, a victim's organization, Kulomani Support Group. And that, that was the beginning of a of a long engagement, um, which started with the master thesis, and then I continued uh, to do my PhD in... So it was in a bit... It was a coincidence. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, went to see her and asked, what what do you need? Um, But then things started to fall in place. Um, I did that research for a master thesis, which wasn't a lot. It was a couple of months, and then I wrote it. But I also started to realize that the topic of apartheid victims actually had something to do with my being Swiss, coming from Switzerland. Uh, which we might talk about later, because Switzerland did have a role in sustaining apartheid. So the Swiss banks and the Swiss states. Um, so in a way, I also got engaged politically with that question.
1: I think that's a really interesting answer. Um, so I did of course the Swiss banks were there. I never really thought about that. Um, you know, we have I'm a Canadian, so of course we're always mm-hmm. so self congratulatory in how we don't participate, but that's just not true. Um we're socialized <laughs> to believe it. But um so of course you made relationships with women at the Kulimani um organization and like who are they? and how how did you understand their victimhood? because I've always found in my own field work the way that we researchers think and talk about people is quite different than how they think and talk about themselves. And I thought one value of your study was that you were really able to capture not only their lived experiences, but how uh, the the violence of the apartheid era was really embodied in their present day
2: um it was really a process um and it wasn't it wasn't very easy so um that um victims organization kulomani they've had many researchers before me so they had quite at least the executive office and the office bearers and uh, the council they had a clear idea of how to deal with researchers and didn't always have a good impression of them so there was ca- kind of a legacy of researchers, flying in, getting some data, and flying out, basically. My advantage was that I really had time at my hands, especially for the PhD. I had about two years, um, which I could just do anything, um, basically hanging around um, with the organization, but then also with individual members. And that probably, you know, was an advantage to actually get engaged uh, with the women and men, but mainly women themselves, I didn't start, um, I didn't come to Cape Town and with the plan of doing research on the bodily experience of victimhood. It's really something which um, came to me to, as I proceeded in the research. So I, you know, I wrote a proposal, everything you have to do as a PhD candidate, but it was Quite a different proposal at the time. It was focused on the law and the legal discourse, etc. But only as time went by, and I, yeah. after many months, even a year, I realised there's something which the law doesn't capture. It's easy to speak about legal discourse of victimhood and criticise how victims use it, or you know, show how they use it. When do they frame themselves as victims? When do they say they are survivors? How do they position themselves? um but it's quite a different story if you try to capture what it actually means to be physically and mentally and emotionally a victim and that's a, a dimension which only dawned on me as I you know conducted my research so the the bodily dimension was kind of thrown at me uh, by the the people I did research with and on um which I quite appreciated as a process because it, it then became dialogical in a way
1: Well such an interesting part of your book I think so of course you have a, a six chapters that are substantive plus the intro and conclusion and you write at the end the ethnographic experience and anthropological knowledge and I I appreciated that uh, chapter because you show how your thinking evolved over time, not because you came as an all-knowing researcher, but because of your ability to, number one, listen, but to, number two, also appreciate the bodily reactions that these women were having. And, you know, maybe my knowledge is not complete, but I found that very few researchers Mm -hmm. engage the bodily dimension of doing research. I think what really stood out for me is your theorizing of embodiment, but also your attention Mm -hmm. to... Um, how to understand these women, you know, in their context and everything. And I think one thing we forget about as researchers is that the violence of the everyday doesn't end even when the state, of course... um, Projects itself as a victor. And the TRC, of course, is a great example. It's hailed as a model to be replicated by members of the international community. But if you go into the um, neighborhoods and flats of Cape Town, you see that the TRC is really a failure for them. So how do you manage as a researcher, uh, the promises, people, you come, you said your research terrain was quite crowded, you had time on your side. Um, how do those relationships play out in the production of anthropological knowledge
2: again it um it was a process in that I started working for the organizations, which was you know just as a volunteer and as a researcher, just helping them um with whatever they needed computer or designing a flyer or organizing something, which also showed my commitment and I had something to do, which I was relieved about, Mm -hmm. and that was the kind of an entry point for me to also then meet individual members um, in their everyday lives, in their communities, and not not at the office anymore, but actually where they lived, and that happened after a couple of months. So I would start to visit them on a daily basis um, as often as I could, um, and just be with them. Especially when it comes to um the experiences of you know the disappearance of children or the killing of their husbands or their own illnesses or injuries, which are often expressed as diabetes or high blood pressure or these chronic diseases, it's not something people want to talk about um especially not to not to anyone and I was quite cautious not to not to re-dramatize them. So sometimes one of the women started to speak and told me something um, but then she would break down. And and I I wasn't prepared for that and I'm not trained as such. I'm not a psychologist or anyone who could, you know, really counsel them. So I became quite cautious and didn't even ask questions uh, about their past. Uh, but rather just try to see how do they manage today? What are they doing in the morning? And then um, how do they look after their grandchildren? And where do they meet? Where do they do their shopping? Um, where do they get their medicine? And what are their daily needs and, and concerns and struggles? Um, so I kind of moved to the background and just tried to be um and that was probably the best move I made in a way to really come close to some of the women. Um and have something which was as much as it can be equal, so they could also decide on the terms of, you know, engagement. Often they would tell me, I'm I feel too sick, you shouldn't come today Um, or they would ask me to bring medicine which they couldn't get in the local uh, pharmacy would also ask me for favors with um, some bureaucratic uh, stuff.
0: I think, oh, I'm Say sorry. That.
2: Exactly. Yes, please. I
1: didn't mean to cut you off. I uh, mm-hmm. I think one of the values of the book is this um, the way you write poignantly about the relationships you made, and of course you're speaking about them. I can hear you becoming emotional, and that's one thing that i think um researchers can be more mindful of is we too um have emotional relationships with our participants and they become friends of a sort and um you know everything is sort of rooted in the relationships that we build what relationships if any do you have with them today are you still in touch with them or is it something maybe they didn't want where you did write about victimhood sometimes we can be triggering
2: I'm still in touch, um, and I, I left on a good, good note. And I kept on coming back. So after I did uh, the the biggest part of my research, I returned every year. I also returned when the book came out and gave a copy to each of them, um, and also to a couple of copies to the to the organization, um, and launched the book with them and discussed it with them. So. I'm still in touch, and I, I think they they feel represented um, and maybe a little bit empowered. Somebody wrote a complete book on them, and it's an international book; it's internationally available.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so, so I think it's continuous, and I, I moved on in terms of research. I'm not doing research on, on Zambia, a different country, a, um, a different topic. But I'm still in touch with them, and I might go back to you know to do a follow up of course um, we We call one another and I get updates. Many of them are elderly, so they are not very good at at social media or um, some of them even don't have a phone, so it's <laughs> often you know I go to one person and we speak about the others, and I get an update of how they are um, and many of them pass away of course. Um, as the years go by so i i learn about that as well
1: i think that's one of the the values of your book if you if you've documented the lives of you know women in particular but people we don't hear that much about and i think that's really one of the values of your study and that's my next question more substantively what is the status of the legal case that is at the heart of your book
2: so the cases were filed almost Seventeen, eighteen years ago, in in the U.S. courts, and it went through all the different, you know, the district court level, appeals court, even Supreme Court, um, and eventually it was dismissed. So there's, um, it's it's finished. Uh, that is a, that's the short answer to a long legal story. Quite a fascinating legal story. Um, so it wasn't successful in that sense, and quite disappointing. Maybe for those who, who, you know, to the listeners who don't know, it it was a case uh, submitted by apartheid victims. It was a class action eventually, and it was submitted against multinational companies which aided and abetted the apartheid regime, and especially the security forces. Um, And one after the other, the companies were dropped by the courts because there was too little evidence or connection to the United States. to, to have enough evidence of, of a violation. And the multinational companies weren't just American, um, they were mainly European. Um, but it, they used the alien tort statutes, um, which allows foreigners to sue companies which have at least a branch in the United States. But as the court case, you know, took its history, um, the use of the usage of the Alien Tort Statute became narrower and narrower, um, so it became impossible for the claimants to to prove the case, and the case was eventually dismissed.
1: I mean, part of the story of your book, and I think it's such an important one, is the embodied reactions of being in a uh, an, an open setting, hearing from lawyers, trusting the knowledge of lawyers, but also being skeptical about this sort of. Um, formal knowledge, let's call it, or legal knowledge, and the way that the women you interviewed knew that the apartheid state had harmed them and that they continued to live with the pain that they experienced, you know, diabetes or high blood pressure, the things you mentioned a few minutes ago, um, Your book, of course, does a nice job of theorizing the relationship between the law and the body using embodiment uh, theory. So what what happened in the course of your research that you realized what was happening was actually an embodied reaction? And what can the embodiments, for lack of a better word, of these women tell us about the study of violence and the study of justice or perhaps the impossibility of justice?
2: Maybe to start from... um from elsewhere, as as you mentioned, scholars, but also activists are often quite skeptical um, about the law that, you know, making a legal case would actually bring um, a solution to a case, an emotional law, um, yes, a solution to uh, to experiences of violence. And I share this skepticism. Sure. Because often, um, if people as a group or individuals turn to the courts, they they are quite disappointed. For one, often there is not even a decision, as in the apartheid cases uh, I talked about a minute ago. Yep. But also, as people start to get entangled in 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 the courts and this logic of proving their case, they get harmed a second time, a third time, um, and also they experiences which, as we say, are quite embodied, and they know they in, in a way they have the truth. Of a violation in their bodies becomes stripped um, into, um, and what remains is a very legalistic, um, you know, perspective on the right. violation, which is very far away from what the claimants actually want to say. Um, but at the same time, the law. So, scholars and activists who say it's not only this, what they call legalization happening. Something becomes legal even though it's political.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, it's actually even more, an uh, issue becomes depoliticized. Uh, so, um, as you turn to the courts, things get almost swallowed uh, by the legal logic and politics doesn't play into it anymore. So these questions which are inherently political, you know, who is in charge of a transformation, who should be redressed and receive reparations, etc., become legalized and therefore politicized. But while I share these concerns, and I think we've seen that in in the cases I looked at as well, um, I also think that the law has at least the potential to help people to emancipate from their experiences. And... I was interested in that tiny possibility, so to say, and I tried to see how, how can we understand that in terms of uh, apartheid violations. So how I theorized that the, the relationship between the law and the body was to say, yes, the law is very discursive, um, it, it's very limited, um, and everything which is Beyond
0: the law, <clears throat> um, could.
2: Oh, the, the other way around, people can only start to claim um, their rights or redress or reparations if they have gone through a certain experience, uh, like a violation. Right. So they connect much, much more than people usually think to a court case they connect their, their whole subjectivity um, to uh, that legal possibility of maybe transforming um, their personhood.
1: Well, it's so interesting in the South African case. Thank you for your um, answer there. And I put you on the spot a little bit. Because um, one thing that I think really comes to the fore in your book is the, are the intersecting... Uh, bodily experiences of class but also of race mm-hmm. and of course age you mentioned earlier that many of the women in particular you spoke to are, are are elderly um quote unquote um how does class and race and age continue to play out for the women in in your um study
2: That's a very good question I never framed you know the topic in these terms but of no. course there these three notions are all over um and that's quite uh that would that makes it comparable, i guess to the united states and and other places so age um is very important in the sense that it's quite a generational issue The women I worked with um and maybe the next generation they have direct experiences of what it was what what it felt like to to live um under apartheid um, so they lived through it and then um you know saw the advent of democracy, but for them, they still feel the legacy of apartheid on an everyday basis. but then a younger generation uh which wasn't maybe was born after ninety four um or even a bit earlier, for them, the issue is quite different and I think we see that now with the student protests in south africa yeah um, i mean in the last couple of years. They are much more impatient with transformation, but they are also much more. They have much more energy, so to say, to um, to, to claim their rights for for transformation from a very different position. So sometimes there seems to be a, a little bit of a disconnect between the generation I worked with sure. and and the newer generation, which um, I often found a pity that they don't communicate more with one another because they would have. A lot to say to one another, and it's probably something which we also saw in Germany after, you know, World War II, and how a, a new, younger generation in '68 um, had enough of their parents' silence, so to say, and was much more radical and loud. Um, but in the essence, they spoke of the same, uh, you know, issue. So there's definitely an age. Um, gap or yep. issue here? Uh, class, of course. So I, I could have written about Nelson Mandela and uh, other few uh, individuals who made it, who could step up social classes, so to say, right? And, um, and could participate in the new South Africa. But in the end, it's just a handful of people, or some, you know, a new middle class, uh, some people say, but I, I, I quite doubt how many um, there actually are. Many of them live in debt and quite precariously so, so uh, they probably fall back into a, a working or a lower class quite easily. And my research was really with a, with, um, the lower class in terms of uh, their socio economic background um and uh, the means they had to, to emancipate themselves through a job or um a new education or something which would help them to to step up the social ladder the class in that sense is very important even though it's not used anymore in south africa as a uh, political analytical lens, right? Um, but it probably should.
0: Well, and oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And,
2: uh, just the last one, race. Well, the whole apartheid system was built on an idea of race and races. That's probably quite a self-explanatory point. Most victims are black South Africans or from neighbouring countries. Um, so he you know, participated in labor migration. Um, But there are also, of course, whites and um, victims, and they're also quite vocal and have a similar story to tell. But essentially, it's still, it's it's a race issue.
1: Well, it's so interesting, your um, comment about the fees must fall protests, the tuition protests at the University of Cape Town, and of course, other universities in South Africa, really does show, I think, and your book does a nice job of picking this up, that the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is an embodied reality for South Africans who lived through it and it's a it's a, a normative or an ideal for those who've not. But the protests really show the limits of the TRC in some way and of course South mm-hmm. African society more broadly um to manage the the pain and the harms and the, the um violence of that time. So I think one thing your book does well, and this is my next question, is you recognize that the TRC not only failed to adequately incorporate bodily forms of victimhood, but that it really didn't do anything to push actual truth and actual reconciliation in South Africa. So the question is How can studies of bodily victimhood tell us or teach us about the limits of the transitional justice project?
2: Maybe first to clarify, I I I still admire the Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, of South Africa, and it's it's been copied all over the world. I don't think it could have done much much more than it did with the mandate it had and the funds it had and the quite precarious political yeah uh, times it worked in so the main issue is probably for myself, but this is some something which came up in conversations with uh my research interlocutors um it wasn't so much the t s c which failed, but that there was very little follow up mm um of the t s c so the t s c made quite um expansive. Recommendations and on a whole range of things, as you, as you know, yes. starting from symbolic reparations, uh, but also to uplifting people with um, financial redress or uh, possibilities of uh, getting an ed- education. But very little of these recommendations were actually taken up by the South African state under uh, Mbeki administration at the time. Right. And and later, Suma, and up to today. So it's not so much the failure of a institution, which would also maybe be too much to have asked. But what happened since? And in that sense, it's uh, it's something which we can learn from apartheid victims. You say you um, basically put the the issue on a on a flag, saying um, there is a legacy and the legacy of our experiences needs to be dealt with. You can't just have an institution which runs for one or two years, uh, which relies on language and people being able to speak, and then everything should be fine. You need to follow up, and there's need to have continuous healing in that sense, which should engage victims and, and include them in this process.
1: And I I appreciate your comment, as of course, um, you probably know the Canadian government is engaged Mm -hmm. in a TRC type uh, activity with indigenous communities. And they are taking, just as you described in South Africa, a one and done. Kind of approach Mm -hmm. we talked about this. Let's move on. We have bigger issues, but of course, as your book I think shows um, quite well and quite tragically actually, you know, service delivery is an issue. Access to education and health remains an issue. Um, Some of these structural issues that um, you know shaped their lives pre-apartheid. Never mind the violence of the apartheid era continues Mm -hmm. to shape their lives today. So I appreciate Mm -hmm. your comment on. Follow up. And of course, um, I think that's what's so fascinating about your book and why I wanted to interview you today because of your theorizing of the embodiment and the embodiment of violence. It really comes into thinking about um, lives live after violence. And that's something that, of course, um, scholars have thought, thought about, but policymakers less so. So that's one question I have for you. If you had an audience with a South African political leader or someone who could actually perhaps do something, what advice would you give them?
2: Before I would even dare to give an advice, because I I think they had quite a difficult uh, job, True. I would maybe try to sensitize them on the fact that very few things in our lives, very general, are easily put into words. So most of the experiences and most of what we do is bodily we we walk without explaining to somebody how we walk um and it's only if we stumble uh we realize oh we've been walking you know without any problems um how do i actually do that walking and Mm -hmm. we would struggle to explain how how walking works it's something we just naturally do and we have learned so we do it habitually Um, and even more so with experiences which were harmful, it's very difficult to put that into words, Um, especially if it has shaped our lives to the extent that it directs our movements or how we engage with uh, people from another social class. So what I want to say is that apartheid victims and victims more generally of any kind of violence struggle to put their experiences into words. you know, what I mentioned with the law p- right. a couple of minutes ago. So they struggle to do the same with politics. Um, let's say they're invited by a minister and says, okay, I'll I listen to you now. Tell me everything, you know, you want to tell me. People would probably struggle to exactly uh, formulate uh, what they know, even though they live it every, you know, every day. So the first advice would probably be that we become scholars but also uh, policymakers become more aware of of the things which are difficult to pronounce and that we uh, learn to listen better. Especially in a post violent society where even the minister uh, or policymakers themselves have gone through these experiences. So it's um it's sometimes a bit surprising how how little they listen to to victims even though they actually share some of the experiences even even those who were in exile so and the second dimension is um coming from switzerland but also you know having a more international perspective that we shouldn't forget that south africa um really didn't have in the nineties, mm-hmm. to redress ninety uh, percent of the population, to put it simple, and right. to um, roll out massive um, programs for social economic upliftment um, of the majority of its people, because the international community um, they contributed something to to the uh, you know to to the upliftment of the country, but most debts, um, which were odious and illicit, according to some lawyers, right, um, South Africa actually repaid. So there was very little to uh, to start that new South Africa on, uh, materially and financially. So, the advice I would give maybe to South Africans and at the policy level is. To start claiming some of the funds from the international community, from the different countries, from the businesses, the banks, the um, the automation um, and IT industry, which all profited from apartheid sure, at the time. And that's something which has never happened. And that's what the apartheid cases we talked about actually tried to get. I
1: think that's one thing that is really um, eloquently um, elucidated in your book is the difficulty of speaking violence in a way that politics or law can actually understand and appreciate. And of course, that's a stumbling block to reparations or repair, never mind sort of the structural um, inability of, you know, funding and mandates and precarious political climates. And that raises um, uh, a question I had about... Practical concerns, how do you manage as an anthropologist, um, the st- how do you talk to your students about the work that you do and how you study uh, the lives of people who have lived through violence? It can be very easy to exoticize and other, and of course, you're very careful not to do this in your study. What kind of advice would you give to a new anthropologist, perhaps picking up on your
0: study and continuing the work in uh, South Africa?
2: I would probably ask them or advise them not to not to do interviews. This is something which even um at our department in a methodology course, the first thing would be you know we teach them how to do interviews yes. or do conversations just because this is something um uh, you can transcribe, and in the end, you have a something black and white and you have real data. Um, and everything else, which is not not a conversation, is a bit scary because he, the students think, and even PhD students and scholars think these are not real data. Right. Um, but th- I had lots of data on the bodily dimension uh, of victimhood in my field notes. That you know, our way of documenting um, our research as we go along. Every evening, we write our field notes. It was just not the black and white, it was between the lines, in a way. Again, even for myself, it was difficult to put it into words, Uh, so I had to develop some kind of a language for myself and then for the book, um, to speak to an audience. There was another struggle Mm and another translation, in a way, so to the students, I would say Engage with people as much as you can, but talk as little as you can <laughs> and try listen. to learn from mm-hmm. listen uh try to learn from others not just what they say but also how it feels to be with them and what what you sense as you spend time with them. We are quite receptive if we stop talking for a moment. I think everyone is um we just to often talk too much because we are nervous. And we think, you know, we should keep the conversation going.
1: That's a good point. Yeah. Americans in particular, I think, are um, guilty of this. Many of us are. But, um,
2: and, and also, um, speaking of PhD project, you have questions in my, ma- in your mind, uh, which you want to have answered, um, and you come prepared you know, as a good PhD student or scholar, of course. And instead of first listening, what is, what are the issues in, in the location where you landed, for some reason, uh, we often talk too much, um, but should be the other way around. We should be able and free, also freed by funding organizations, to, to do research bottom-up, just to be able to not say too much and to listen. So the context tells us what the issues are and what we should write about so it's a mandate in a way.
1: Yeah, I think that's um really good advice and of course we've already taken up read up, um quite a bit of your time so I want to start to close by asking you um one final well two final questions. Um do you have any books or articles or things listeners who are keen to learn more about your work um could read? And of course is there anything that you wanted to say that I didn't ask you?
2: For articles and books, especially the body, it's quite difficult to write about um, and to find a language, as I mentioned. So to students and scholars, my advice would be, at least what I do, is I go back to classics, you know, like Bourdieu, um, and even sometimes philosophy, although that that could be tricky, Mm -hmm. Merleau-Ponty, and Marcel Moss. Um, again, another classic in terms of what is a habitus, what is a, uh, w- w- what is a body and what do we know bodily. So I find that quite refreshing to go back to these early writings. Um, and to find a language of a, of a close description of people's lives that often just read, not scholarly stuff, but just great books.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So that would also be an advice, even um, detective stories or something—they know how to write, uh, and I think we can we can learn a lot uh, from them. But in terms of the uh, the topic of apartheid victims or that that story, I would maybe recommend uh, to read a book which just came out. Um, it's called *Class Action in Pursuit of a Larger Life* by Charles Abraham. Um, it came out with Penguin Press. And mm-hmm. He is one of the lawyers, the South African lawyers, uh, which was at the beginning um, of the apartheid litigation. Uh, so he writes the whole story from a lawyer's perspective. And what's more, he's, he grew up in the Cape Flats, so in, in a very uh, poor community and worked his way up to to becoming one of the most best known lawyers in South Africa and even internationally in the United States, so I would advise uh, students or anyone else interested in the topic to read that if you are more interested in uh, international connections of you know who financed apartheid and and what's the legacy of it uh and as an example, um, maybe look at Switzerland. Mm -hmm. There is a report which was published uh, by Georg Kreis, I can give you the details. Yes, thanks. And it looks at the relationship, the business and bank relationship, but also between the two governments between 1948 and 1994, Uh, that's a nice report if people really want to get into the details of these uh, very dubious relationships. And maybe finally, the book I mentioned, which inspired me initially, uh, Bearing Witness by Fiona Ross, is also a really uh, great book on the topic, which kind of preceded my study. So These two books can be read together.
1: Well, it's so interesting that you mentioned Fiona Ross, because, of course, you know, most of my work is on Rwanda. Her book, Bearing Witness, also Mm -hmm. inspired me um, to do the work that I did in in a different context. Mm-hmm. Science so a really important book, yeah, to me anyway.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, and then last but not least, is there anything that you wanted to share with listeners that I failed to ask you? So, of course, I my questions were really about my area of interest and we didn't talk so much about the law or anything that I failed to ask you that you want people to know?
2: Maybe a concern which, uh, which is also in the book but I still... Struggle with, and I think as a as a scholarly uh, community, we should keep on working on the topic, uh, which is solidarity, um, in the sense that you know I talked about the class actions and how people uh, institute cases as a class or as a group of thousands, even ten thousands of victims, and it's always a thin line of uh, a solidarity. Uh, being established through court cases because um, it's a class, so everyone is the same. You become a group, mm-hmm. um, but also as soon as there's the possibility of a um, of a payout, of redress, financial redress, this is always a threat of uh, of the solidarity breaking apart, and that's a that's a tension which I really try to get my grip on and um i still struggle with politically also because it's an, it's a national regional issue but it's also an international um issue how can we show solidarity right um and you know as, as scholars from elsewhere um and work together and and be wary that these uh, that our struggle can easily be broken apart by by financial, um, how do you say? Like um, relationships. Um, exactly, or un, an inequality um, between Europe, United States, and African countries. So solidarity is just a, something I would want people to write and think about.
1: Yeah, thank you for that, Rita. I want to thank you for a great interview. Um, Everyone should read your book, Bodies of Truth, Law, Memory, and Emancipation in Post-Apartheid South Africa. Um, Thanks so much.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It was great. I enjoyed it.
1: Thank you.